Hi there, this is Abby at Recovery Radio, and I'm going to share a simple secret that will make you smile all day. Just go to www.recoveryradio.net and click the Donate button. The larger the amount you donate, the bigger your smile will be. Feel the power of recovery for yourself and become part of the solution. Go to recoveryradio.net right now and start your day with a smile. Good morning, everybody. My name's Jim, and I'm a very, very grateful member of the Fellowship of Alanon. First thing is that scavenger hunt is at 11. Does that mean I have 20 minutes to talk? Let's try. When I say I'm a grateful member of the Fellowship of Alanon, I mean I am a grateful member of this fellowship. The uh, title of this convention, Gratitude, is just uh, so appropriate for this particular week of the year. On uh, Thursday, of course, the whole country celebrated Thanksgiving. And on uh, Wednesday, as I sat around my daughter's house up in Hattiesburg and I watched her recovering alcoholic mother and uh, she also in recovery, two women who had spent a great deal of time at one another's throats. I can remember when that girl put a cock loaded 357 in her mother's face and expressed an intense desire to blow it off. But as I watched on Wednesday, the two of them shared a kitchen and cooked together and joked and cut up, joking cut up as well as the celery. And, you know, that is just an absolutely amazing transformation and for that I am just intensely full of gratitude. A couple weeks ago, uh, at a Al-Anon meeting, not my home group, it was, a, it was a different group, and the chairperson uh, opened the meeting, did the readings, and said that she had not, didn't have a, a topic for the program, and just sort of opened it up. And of course, there was that usual intense studying of the binding of ODAT and the status of cuticles, and uh, eventually, uh, I suggested, let's talk about gratitude. And so we started sharing about gratitude, and it got around to someone who had been coming to Al-Anon, I suppose, three months, four months, and she said she didn't know what we were talking about. She says, I don't, I don't know what that feeling of gratitude you people are talking about is. And it was my turn to share next, and I said one of those things, you know, sometimes you say something you didn't know you knew. And I said, you get the feeling of gratitude one step at a time. And when you get to the twelfth step, the essence of the spiritual awakening is a sense of just intense gratitude. Gratitude to be alive, gratitude to be where you are, and gratitude for everything that happens. Absolutely everything that happens. The first time I heard someone share from a podium that they were grateful that their spouse was an alcoholic, I thought this was the absolute ultimate in Looney Tunes. And it just made no sense to me. Today I can tell you that I am very grateful that my spouse is an alcoholic. Because if it were not for that, if it were not for the power of that disease, I would never have been brought to my knees, and I would never have learned the things that I have learned in the process of working these steps. 
But I'm grateful she's a drunk. I'm especially grateful she's a sober drunk, but I'm, I'm grateful that, that she's a drunk. The um, instructions are that I'm to tell you how I was, what happened to me, how I am now. And um, I can tell you that I was a egocentric, egotistical, self-centered, self-justifying, very driven individual. And I can tell you that as a consequence of this program, I am an entirely different person. That's not to say that I've been turned into any kind of a saint. I thought I was sort of a saint before I got to the program, but I now realize that that's not, uh, that's really not the goal of this program or this life, to turn any of us into perfect human beings. But the more I work this program, and the longer I work this program, and the more I change in this program, I realize that without this program, I haven't changed at all. And that's why I kind of stay close to it. I stay in this program, and I have, um, I have a home group, sponsor people. I attend meetings in addition to my home group, and I read the literature on a daily basis, because if I don't, I slip. Dramatically. And uh, it's not fun being back where I was. So I've already told you what happened to me and what the bottom line is, so the uh, that's the short form. Anybody that's is anxious, they can go ahead and leave now and then I'll just tell you again everything I just said, but I'll do it in detail. There's often a tendency to want to look at our past and do a little blaming. So, you know, I came from such and such a kind of household and these people did that and that's why I did this and that's why I am. And the reality is everything that happened in my my past and everything that's about me in the past was the way it is. Period, paragraph. There isn't a whole lot of reason to discuss how and why. You know, it's a little bit if your car is in the ditch, it's a lot more important to know you got a wrecker on the way than to figure out how it is you slipped off the road. My home of origin was delightful. I did not have uh, a nasty and unpleasant upbringing. Uh, my father was a workaholic. He was a general surgeon. And... Um, Workaholism is a lot the same dynamics as alcoholism. There's uh, one individual sets the tone for the entire family. If uh, the old man was upset that day, everybody had to stay out of his way. And in very many similar parallels with uh, a family where there's active alcoholism. Now, there's one big difference. Generally, when there's active alcoholism, there is financial problems and all sorts of scrapes with the law, and when there's workaholism, it's exactly the opposite. There's generally a great deal of respect in the community, and there's always a lot of money. So I was, I was raised with considerable affluence. My father would frequently tell you he was a self-made man. He came from a fairly poor origin on a farm, 
He went through college and medical school during the Depression, which he funded himself. And he was very proud of that. He was convinced that a life um, driven by self was successful. And he would use himself as an example. I was taught at a very early age that I had considerable privilege in that I was smart and I had talent and that using the principles of life that he had observed and proven there was nothing that I couldn't do. And for the first 40 years of my life I lived that way and I proved that and I believed that. I was a Boy Scout. But as you know, if I was a Boy Scout, that meant I had to be an Eagle Scout. Um, when I was 16 years old, I got a private pilot's license. Before I was out of high school, I had a commercial license with an instrument rating. Then, in my high school years, high school, I was in the top 5% of my class. In my end of my high school years, um, there was a falling out a natural falling out between son and father. He was a physician, began if I was going to be a physician. And I was going to be a chemical engineer. The best engineering school that I could find was MIT and I went there. No one in my high school had ever been accepted there. I graduated four years later. In the meantime, I decided I wanted to be a physician, so I went to medical school. It wasn't all that terrible. I mean, chemical engineering had a lot of chemistry and science, but it sort of fit together. Graduated from medical school in 1970. If you know the history of our country, 1970, we had a war going on in Southeast Asia. If you were finishing medical school, you were going to be in a uniform. My last year of medical school, I joined the Army. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. And I went to Fitzsimmons in Denver uh, for postgraduate training. I was offered a residency in two different specialties, both of them highly sought after. Normally people wait a year or two to be able to get accepted. The chairman of both departments asked me to take a residency under that. I chose your nose and throat. And uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the Army. You know, for someone who comes from the kind of background we all understand that we all and I share, that tremendous need to be organized, to have things, you know, a little line, you know. The army was just an ideal place for me. And in fact, it was so ideal that I did very well. And I'd been in the army, decided to stay in the army, and I had a regular commission. I'd been in the army nine years, and I was lieutenant colonel. I promoted a year ahead of my peer group. And then the army said, they wanted me to quit doing clinical medicine and go be an administrator in the hospital. I thought I couldn't do that, and it turned out the only way that I could not take that assignment was to resign my commission. For years, I used to say that was the sole reason I got out of the Army. Having been in this program, having worked this program for a while and gotten inside myself and gotten honest, I realized that that actually was a geographic cure. In the Army in that time, in the 1970s, the life was still a very important part of promotions and advancement. 
and uh, less so now, but it was an important issue. And my wife was not behaving. I would tell her that she needed to be involved. I'm not a field grade officer. That she needed to be involved in the officers' wives club and to do these things, these white gloves and little pillbox hat type things. And she just wasn't. She wasn't doing that. And so at, at the time, I had no conscious knowledge that what I was doing was a geographic cure. But I was making an occupational change, changing where I was because I couldn't control someone else's behavior. So I went into private practice. And you know, that's a very time-consuming um, very community-oriented type of uh, of business. And so I went to a small town in Mississippi, a town called Natchez. And I joined Rotary Club, and I joined civic organizations, and I talked at civic places. And with the same kind of attention to, to self and to pushing self, in a matter of about six years, I had been chief of uh, staff of both hospitals. I had been chief of the surgery department of both hospitals. I had a very, very active practice. And then, I could no longer ignore the chaos that was in my house. And I began to apply all of that organizational and all of that self-will to solving a drinking problem. And I could not, I could not even call it alcoholism. I'm educated as a physician, and I knew a lot about alcoholism. I knew about esophageal varices, and I knew about liver disease, and I knew about the medical complications of alcoholism. But the emotional physical and spiritual disease of alcoholism, I knew nothing. And even in a larger sense, the family disease of alcoholism, I was clueless. I was in, but I was clueless. The... Um, The middle portion of the 1980s saw a complete reversal in what my behavior in my life, the non-drinker here, was doing. I resigned from Rotary. At one time I belonged to three hunting clubs. I loved to hunt. I resigned from two of them. The only reason I stayed a member of the other one was because I had two young teenage sons who needed to be hunting. But I couldn't go to the hunting camp and think about ducks on the marsh or deer in the bushes because my mind was totally focused on what was going on back in Natchez in my house. I can't tell you the number of times that I drove home from work, pull into the driveway, and have no recollection of having driven home. One day I got there and I said, you know, I don't, 
I don't remember leaving the office. I turned around and I went back. I walked in the back door of my office and the computer was on. The back door was unlocked. The books were laying there. Now, I'm, I'm, I had no idea what happened. I guess it was an Allen on blackout. I mean, I, uh, I just found myself no longer at my office and I found myself sitting in the driveway of my house. And my total focus was on this problem and I couldn't even tell you what this problem was. I also couldn't tell you how I felt about anything. When I look back at that period of time, I recognize that I really only had two emotions. I had anger, which was that close to rage. And give you an example as to as to how how quickly I could do rage. I came home one afternoon. My oldest son, who was probably uh, 13, 14 at the time, had been working on a three-wheeler. And um, I keep my tools neat. And my sockets in the toolbox are lined up. They're, they're an inch and an eighth, inch and sixteenth, one inch, fifteen sixteenth. I mean, they're, they're lined up just so that you know exactly which one you're going to pick up next. So this 13 or 14 year old kid had fixed his three wheel and he had put the socket back in the tool chest. Now, Listen, I said, he had put the socket back in the tool chest. He didn't leave them in the yard. But he didn't put them in in the right order. And I went into a rage. I hit him. I mean, I beat on him. That is the intensity with which I was trying to keep some order in my life. And the very, very thin shell between rational behavior and this impulsive rage. The other feeling that I had by this time was an incredible sense of loneliness. And again, for years I used to think, well, that's because my spouse was unavailable. She was emotionally unavailable to me and that's why I was feeling so isolated. Having worked through these steps and having talked at length with my sponsors about my character defects, I don't think that's really what was going on. That was partly what was going on, obviously. But if you go back to the way I was raised, I was taught that I was different. I was taught that something was expected of me different from what was expected of everyone else. I was expected to be better. I was expected to, as a competitive shooter, I shot my first competitive shooting match when I was eight years old. I did that till I was 40. I was expected to win. That feeling that we often hear about people sharing from the podium of that 
being in a room full of people and being alone? I did that. I did that. Because I'd look at you and say, hey, she's shotgun there. I'm smarter than you are. I make more money than you do. I put up barriers between me and people based on my ego, based on my need to support my ego and myself. And then I turn around and have the audacity to say, you know what? I'm awesome. I am nobody. Say what? It's a family disease. The feelings and the emotions that I hear expressed at an open AA meeting one that I can identify with. I can identify with those feelings. Well, how come if I'm not drinking the booze? So that's, I've got those same disease characteristics. Now, in, in our family disease, Jane was just a carrier. But we all have the disease. Proof positive is the same cure works for both. The 12 steps of Al-Anon are the same as the 12 steps for AA. One word different. In the 12th step, AA says, carry the message to alcoholics. And Al-Anon is a carry the message to others. One word. In your, is that a big deal? Actually, sometimes one word is a big deal. There's an old fellow. Oh, oh, not an ancient man, but an old man. He had adult children. I mean, he was that old. He's been feeling... I got adult children. And I'm proud to tell you they're self-supporting to their own contributions. <laughs> this fellow had not been feeling well. He went to the doctor. The doctor punched on him and did a bunch of tests. And he'd come back next week for a test. Test result. He had bad feelings about what he's going to hear. So he asked one of his sons, his oldest son, to come with him. When we came out of the doctor's office, his face was gray, and his son said, Ah, oh, what's the matter? And the doctor says, I've got cancer. And it's spread, and there's nothing they can do. I'm going to die pretty soon. His son was real upset. The father pulled himself up and he says, But we're Irish. And we're happy. We go to the pub and have a beer. And when we're sad, we go to the pub and we have a beer. So they went to the pub and had a beer. Or two. Or three. And the longer they sat there drowning their grief, the less like grief and the more like a celebration it became. And uh, pretty soon some of the old man's friends had come into the pub and they had joined them there and they were still having a little more brewskis. And, uh, finally one of them asked the old man, said, what are we celebrating? Pulled himself up. We're Irish. We have something to celebrate, we come to the pub and have a beer. And we have grief, we come to the pub to drown our grief in beer. And this is, this is a serious situation. He said, I was at the doctor today and he said I, he looked around at his friends and he said, he said that I have AIDS and I'm going to die soon. Well, I put an end to the party. I mean, within five minutes, they were all gone, and there's nobody there but the old man and his and his son. His son leaned forward and he said, Pa, I thought you said the doc told you that you had cancer. 
He looked around, made sure none of his friends or anything. I did. But when I die, I don't want any of those SOBs coming around trying to sleep with your mother. <laughs> one word. Just, just one word, see? Our family disease got to the point that we were sufficiently dysfunctional as a family that we were ready for divorce. And um, it happened that Jane went to treatment. How she got there and the unique circumstances of her story. But while she was in treatment, they told me I had to go to Al-Anon to keep her sober. That's why I heard it. And so I did. I went to my first Al-Anon meeting. There were 20 women in that room. A bunch of them got up and hugged on me. And I said, I think I can take this. <laughs> and I went to Al-Anon for... Um, I've been going to Al-Anon, attending those meetings for about six months. And she was still sober. I thought I was doing a pretty good job. I was keeping her sober. Just like they said. And then a uh, a lady now gone, uh, she was an older woman, probably older than I am now, and that was 17, 18 years ago. Uh, she had been to the first go month or six weeks of meetings I'd attended, and then she had disappeared, and then she came back one night. And oh, everybody was so glad to see her. And in that little chit-chat stuff that goes on around uh, the room before the meeting starts, she was sharing where she'd been, what she'd been doing, and it suddenly dawned on me who she was. Our anonymity was pretty much at that time restricted to last name, initial only. I mean, really hadn't, uh, didn't know, excuse me, didn't really know who people were. And, uh, this woman's alcoholic attorney husband had died eight years ago. Why in the devil is she still coming down on <laughs> That was the first night that I really heard and understood that this was a program that I was supposed to work for me, and it really wasn't about Jane. And so I commenced to working um, the steps. I'm going to share a couple of my experiences working steps. Um, you know, I had this busy medical practice, and um, the second step was a problem for me. It was a problem for, for two reasons. One, I had uh, a real difficulty with a higher power. <laughs> Here I am. I am he. Uh, but I, I had difficulty with that insanity. I could not see the insanity of my life. I could identify the insanity of her life. By the way, I didn't introduce my wife to I apologize for that. My wife is sitting on the front row of Jane, would you stand up so they know? That's the woman I have loved for 40-some years and been married to for 38, and uh, we still have a very, very good marriage, but it is so much better with this program. 
Anyway, I was having trouble with the insanity. And um, it was pointed out to me that the circumstances surrounding her going off the treatment might be a point where I could start to look at that. What happened was I had gone through a period of negotiations. I'm going to divorce you. Oh, no, please don't. I'm going to divorce you. And we would negotiate, you know, how we were going to divvy up our marital goods when we got the divorce. And it wouldn't happen if she didn't drink. And then each time she would drink, we would renegotiate that. And I had this thing down to the point she was going to get a $1,000 cash and a six-year-old car and hit the road next time. Yeah. I, 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 said, I had trouble following the insanity on my part. I thought that was pretty cagey. Well, the inevitable, you know, she can't whiten up with it. And so the inevitable occurred and she got drunk and that was on a Wednesday. And on Thursday, I was supposed to leave town to go to Birmingham, Alabama to a medical meeting that started early on Friday. So I was going to see some patients in the office on Thursday morning. And then I was going to drive over to Birmingham Thursday evening and be there for Friday, Saturday, Sunday medical meeting. And on Monday, the attorney was going to give her the papers. Cause it, I mean, I'd seen the attorney, the papers, and all I had to do was put the dates in and sign the paper. I got a phone call mid-morning, and she said that she had uh, decided she really needed to go to treatment. And she talked to the Baton Rouge General Hospital, CDU, and our insurance would cover it. They had confirmed that, except for about $600 cash they needed. And would I not divorce her? for 28 days so she could finish it. I suppose. <laughs> I, I was generous. I thought that would be reasonable. Um, but the only problem was they weren't going to have a bed until Saturday afternoon. And our daughter was with friends down in Florida and I had a 17, 15 year old son and James says, you know, if, if I go to treatment and everything, we'll never be able to go back down to Bourbon Street in the French Quarter. And uh, the boys have never been down there. So, they can't get me in until Saturday. So, Jim was working the summer. So, when he gets off work Friday afternoon, what James said we ought to do is she would take the two boys and go down and they'd check in the Monteleone and they'd walk around the French Quarter on uh, Friday night. She'd show them a bunch of stuff down in the French Quarter. Then breakfast, they'd go have some breakfast at Brennan's and then they'd kind uh, of hang around Jackson Park a little bit and then on the way back to Natchez they'd just swing by the Baton Rouge CDU and drop mom off. So I went by the bank and I got six $100 bills. I came home, I gave six $100 bills to my alcoholic wife. I gave her a gold MasterCard. My two sons, I went for me. No insanity in my life at all. And I'm divorcing her because she's a hopeless alcoholic. The, uh, the process of working steps eventually put me right in front of four. And oh, I had some trouble with that. And a lot of the trouble was that um, there was this room full of women. Now, I, I enjoyed that, but there's some things you need to talk about when you're doing some of your step forth business that you need to talk to a man. And the only men around 
for alcoholic men, and that worked out, right? Since uh, I can say we're often the same there. Some of my four steps, because these are the same men that go to meetings with my wife, and you can see there's a potential conflict of interest here. So, an unusual event occurred. Now, remember, I am, I am not agnostic, and I am not atheistic, but I am not uh, yet able to say God without choking a little bit. Um, I have... I have one of these attitudes that God started this whole thing, kind of wound it up, and he then went someplace. And it was up to us, especially those of us who had a superior intellect, to, to run that whole deal, you know? You know the biggie problems, God takes care of. But this day-to-day, everyday stuff, uh, we're supposed to take care of ourselves. That was then. But anyway, um... I had an opportunity to go to a men's Catholic silent retreat. Well, I'm a physician, and you know what my phone does, so that was that had some benefit right off the bat. And this would be an opportunity for me to work on my four-step stuff. It's a retreat run by Jesuits, and part of the features, although it's a silent retreat, you can get these little... Uh, blocks of time when you can have a one-on-one with one of these priests and hash some stuff out. It seemed to me like an ideal place to do some four-step work. And so I signed up with uh, the fellow that had invited me and I went there and I walked up on the second floor of the dormitory facility where these priests lived and had their offices and it was like six or seven the doors into offices and each one has a clipboard on it and so I randomly went up to one and I put my name in and I went back the next afternoon at the time to talk about some issues that I had and I sat down and I began to explain to them I said now I'm, I'm trying to work this 12 step program and part of what I have to do is I have to come up with a listing of my character defects to sort of a self-analysis and I, I went on and on and on and on. he finally stopped me he just reached out patted me on me and he said yeah I've been sober in AA for 12 years <laughs> I later found out he's the only one up there and in fact several of the others really didn't think alcoholism was a disease just a coincidence my life has been filled with those kind of coincidences ever since. He um, he listened and we worked on that. And then he went over to the door and pulled the clipboard off and looked and said, next afternoon he's got two blocks of time. He'd them out, put my name in and said, come back in this step tomorrow. Oh, yeah, I'm not ready for that. <laughs> he said, you will be. Yeah. With the 12-step program, Firmly in our lives, our marriage healed, our kids quit misbehaving. Actually, I had a 12-step office on it. Um, I had to replace my receptionist, and there was a, a, 
and now in recovery, early recovery, that I met in an AA meeting, and she became my receptionist, my long-time employee in the office, um, joined Overeaters Anonymous, and uh, another Al-Anon was my insurance clerk. I had 12 step off. We come in the morning, everybody hugs. Residents from Jackson would come down to my office to see how to do allergy and how to do a, uh, how a private office would run. And for the first day there, you know, they'd come in over the wonderful I guess I come in. Everybody, we all hug. I guess <laughs> that's not the way they do it at the university. <laughs> we, uh, we, we had good, solid recovery. But you know that third step, turn life and will. In about 1989, 1990, began to get a funny little tickle. Remember, I'd had a military career that I had started and left. And I kept getting this feeling that I needed to finish that. And it makes no sense to leave a private office with 10,000 active records to go join the Air Force. And my CPA said, no, this doesn't make sense. But we prayed about it. Jane prayed about it. We came to the same conclusion that that's what we were supposed to do. And so in uh, January of 1990, I made preparations to close that office. And in June of 1990, I signed in at Fort Walton Beach, Florida, Edwin Air Force Base. Air Force gave me my old strength uh, back with my commission. We began another kind of an odyssey. Um, we lived down there two years, and the Air Force moved us to uh, Tokyo, Japan. It's an interesting place to do AA and on. Um, country's full of drunks, but they don't recognize it as a disease. It's just the way men are, and they ignore the fact that the women are that way. And very, very little. In fact, uh, there's, there's only one Al-Anon meeting that I could locate in the entire city of Tokyo, and it was it was primarily a social hour where English-speaking people could get together and talk. They didn't talk much about Al-Anon. Came back and um, was so grateful to find the AA and the Al-Anon that we found in Ocean Spring had a super group there. And uh, that was after three years in the Far East without uh, really much constant contact with program. And uh, so I was real happy to get back to going to meetings and talking to people and sharing. And I uh, had a wonderful sponsor there. The welcome to the Al-Anon meeting has a line in there. It is possible to find contentment and even happiness, whether the alcoholic is still drinking or not. In 1995, Jane came home one day. And she got out of the car. She didn't stand straight. Her head was dipped. Her shoulders drooped. 
She looked up at me and she said, I've been drinking. Because of this program, I was able to put my arms around her and say, baby, I'm sorry. I didn't have to get angry. I didn't have to get in there and manage and tell her what she needed to do and how many meetings she needed to be going to and she needed to call her sponsor more often and didn't do any of that. I called my sponsor. <laughs> and um, I doubled up on my meetings. And I stayed out of her business. The next five years had many, many good times. When I look at the last five years before James sobered up in 85, I can't remember a single good day. But in the next five years after that, I realized we had many, many. What was different? For me. Her disease is like you can predict. Progressive. It got worse. A whole bunch of those yet that hadn't occurred the first time or they did. But in spite of that, this program had so totally changed me and my attitude and my perception of things that divorce never came up. She had good times. Had good family time. There were times that weren't so good. There were times when it was awkward. Mm. But there wasn't any. <coughs> there wasn't any elephant elephant in the living room. We could name it. We call it what it was. We could talk about it, and we could do it on the fly. Um, we planned a uh, New Year's get-together with some friends that we used to share New Year's with uh, when we were in Nashville. And James Disease took over that evening and that New Year's Eve she was pretty caught. And I got to see old-fashioned AA and when they talk about another treatment center and when they talk about any of that. They just said, Jane, you need to come with us. So they packed Jane up and took her down to Dolphin Island, Alabama, and she walked that drunk off on those white sand beaches. She's been sober ever since, for which I am very grateful. But what I learned from that is that that line in our welcome is true. It is possible to find contentment and happiness, and it is not dependent on any other individual or their state of sobriety or not. It's a powerful program. This is a powerful program. I am grateful for this program. My gratitude is a source of my humility. When I became aware that I didn't do these things, when I became aware of those coincidences, when I could understand 
the spiritual awakening of this program that God was doing this stuff. It's a terribly humbling experience just to realize how much he's involved in every day and every facet of everything we do. Real spirituality dawns when the problems and the joys you have each day are no bigger than the God you enjoy each day. And God's that big and God's with you, his spirituality is there and it takes care of the problem. The humility is the source of my anonymity. If I'm not doing it, it's not necessary for you to know me, know anything about me, or know my name. I don't need to be the one running, managing, and pushing. As we well know, anonymity is the spiritual source of all our traditions. Thank you very much. Thank you. I have a little gift for you. I'll have Chase to read the closing. My name's Kay, and I'm a grateful, discovering, recovering person in the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon. Our suggested Al-Anon Alateen closing. In closing, I would like to say that the opinions expressed here were strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. The things you heard were spoken in confidence and should be treated as confidential. Keep them within the walls of this room and the confines of your mind. A few special words to those of you who haven't been with us long. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If you try to keep an open mind, you will find help. You will come to realize that there is no situation too difficult to be bettered and no unhappiness too great to be lessened. We aren't perfect. The welcome we give you may not show the warmth we have in our hearts for you. After a while, you'll discover that though you may not like all of us, you'll love us in a very special way, the same way we already love you. Talk to each other, reason things out with someone else, but let there be no gossip or criticism of one another. Instead, let the understanding, love, and peace of the program grow in you one day at a time. Will all who care to join us in the closing prayer? <laughs>